James Gould, and this is the recess course. Today on the recess course, we have none other than Dr. Nancy Murphy back to talk to us about antidepressants. As we mentioned before, a long list of accolades. Dr. Murphy is associate professor at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Dalhousie University. She's a fellow of the American College of Medical Toxicology. She's the medical director of the Atlantic Canadian Poison Center and a medical communications center physician with EHS. Thanks for coming back, Nancy. Thanks for having me. All right. So today we're going to talk about antidepressants. Antidepressants are a really common thing that we see in the emergency department in terms of overdose. And a great deal of them turn out to do just fine. And there's not much that we have to do about it. But there are a few that are going to cause us a lot of problems. And it really does depend on which poison it is. And sometimes how much of that poison that they've taken, as we always talk about, the dose makes the poison. So Nancy, let's start with a case, and then you can just tell me your general thoughts on it, and then we'll get into some questions. How does that sound? That sounds great. All right, so you're working in the department. A 30-year-old female presents after a polypharm ingestion. It's an unknown quantity of pills. The bottles found include bupropion XL, amitriptyline, escitalopram, and on presentation, her heart rate is 135, her blood pressure is 110 on 70, SATs of 95% on room air, with a temperature of 38.9. She's confused and slightly agitated, and she has clonus in both ankles. So what do you think about that case? Obviously a sick girl, but just walk us through your sort of initial thoughts, initial management of that patient. Well, looking at the medication list and her current symptomatology, I would say this is a potentially fatal ingestion. Even if this patient presented with the current sort of vital signs and symptomatology with bupropion alone or TCA alone, I would still consider a potentially fatal ingestion. But the combination of the two plus the escitalopram, which is associated with seizures and prolonged QT, is even worse. The toxic effects with multiple agents like this is synergistic. I would say bupropion probably scares me more than TCAs at this point. Mm. So that's saying something because TCAs aren't that great either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my observation in uh, cases in particular of bupropion overdoses, this is, there's a tendency to wait a fairly long time before committing to airway management. Okay, So usually the decision to intubate is uh, based on an acute deterioration like multiple seizures with aspiration or hemodynamic instability. But what I, I would recommend is to reflect on what the predicted clinical course will be and act sooner. It's much safer to intubate a patient with uh, hemodynamic stability and non-seizing in a calm room rather than waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah. Geez, yeah, a lot of scary drugs there. Uh, I too have a very healthy fear of, of bupropion. Uh, what about, uh, let's first, I guess, touch on, on the TCA. Uh, it is a feared overdose, as you alluded to. Uh, why is that? Why do we worry so much about TCA overdoses? Well, TCAs are a very dirty drug, so to speak, because they uh, act on multiple uh, neurotransmitters, uh, sorry, neuroreceptors, I should say, and can cause a very rapid deterioration in acute overdose because they're fairly rapidly absorbed and distributed to cardiac tissue. And really the thing we worry about the most is sodium channel blockade because that is the kind of uh, mechanism of the cardiac toxicity that we see that will result in a bad outcome. And blockade of these channels results in myocardial depression, okay? 
In older textbooks, you might see it referred to as like the quinidine-like effect, which is another drug that causes severe sodium channel blockade and toxicity. Um, and so that's really why we fear it. Now, the other receptor effects may contribute to toxicity um, and might enhance it, but they aren't responsible for fatalities per se. And those effects are alpha blockade, uh, anticholinergic effects, GABA agonism, antihistamine effects, uh, norepi reuptake inhibition, etc. That sounds like an awful drug. <laughs> Okay, so let's say you're managing this patient and let's say 10 minutes into their presentation, they begin to seize. And you're doing all the right things, you're getting all your airway equipment ready to intubate them, uh, but unfortunately they began to have a seizure. How do you treat seizures? Is it any different in this patient than it would be in any other seizure that you'd see? Uh, absolutely. So obviously the first thing you do is, uh, is administer benzos, check glucose, um, manage the airway, etc. So benzos would be your first line as, as it is in any cause of seizure. Uh, we never use phenytoin in, in tox seizures because the mechanism, it doesn't make sense with regards to the mechanism of toxicologic seizures because the meca mechanism is an imbalance between too much excitatory neurotransmission and a relative paucity of GABA agonism. So what you're trying to do is uh, optimize GABAergic neurotransmission, not block sodium channels, which is what phenytoin does, right? And so those are sort of the mainstay, but if you find that seizures uh, in this case are benzorefractory, then you're going to reach for other GABAergic drugs. So propofol, if you plan on intubating, uh, phenobarbital is a good one as well. Uh, possibly Kepra. Um, the the pearl is that don't use phenytoin. Oh, that's a great pearl. Great pearl. In terms of the ECG for this patient, what sort of findings might you see? You, you alluded to the idea of sodium channel blockade. So what specifically do you see on this patient's ECG? For sodium channel blockade, uh, you see uh, QRS that is wide. So greater than 100 milliseconds is usually our threshold for sort of considering that it's due to sodium channel blockade. You can see a tall R wave in AVR, which sometimes can appear before a wide QRS, so greater than three millimeters. And these really are surrogate markers of sodium channel blockade. They aren't the end point of treatment per se, but can certainly alert you to sort of imminent toxicity, not just cardiovascular, but also neurotoxicity. Mm. There are often lots of questions around you know, if the QRS is wide, uh, do I automatically give sodium bicarb boluses or do I wait? And because the endpoint is really your hemodynamics mm. um, and the presence or absence of seizures. And so what I typically will say is in the context of TCAs, it, Give a couple of boluses of sodium bicarb, even if they're stable, just to see if there's if you're going to get an effect. Uh, it gives you a sense of how responsive uh, the patient will be to this treatment. But don't you know if they're stable? Just you don't need to sort of pound them with bicarb until their pH is seven point five. If they're stable, just closely monitor and uh, use the boluses of sodium bicarb PRN for when they get sick. Mm. 
in summary there, with TCAs, dirty drug, lots of different receptors it affects, but the one that we maybe is most clinically apparent is the sodium channel blocking effect, um, as well as the GABA effect. And so we will have a patient that is at high risk of seizures and cardiac instability. And in those patients that seize, your initial treatment is going to be all the stuff you'd normally do. So supportive care, benzodiazepines, but also giving boluses of sodium bicarb. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. And in the patient that's presenting without seizures, uh, but signs of sodium channel blockade on their ECG, you may give a few boluses of sodium bicarb, see if you close their QRS, but you're not going to continue to give them boluses uh, in a stable patient for only the purpose of closing the QRS. Correct. And sometimes people will do it anyway and start an infusion. I'm not against that. I just, you know, um, <clears throat> the infusion um, can sort of alter the serum pH and that can reduce TCA binding to the sodium channel. That's mm. the rationale for an infusion. But if they get really sick, you know, the infusion's not going to cut it. You got a bolus. Gotcha. Gotcha. In terms of um, just the logistics around giving the patients sodium, so you mentioned sodium bicarb boluses as being sort of the mainstay. What about the use of hypertonic saline? If someone was starting to get too alkalotic, would you use hypertonic saline? Is there any role for that? I have rarely recommended hypertonic saline. I mean, uh, Sodium bicarb boluses <clears throat> don't necessarily reverse all toxicity. And I would say like 25 years ago, uh, we didn't really have a lot else to offer. Um, so we would tend to push it more, I guess. But now, I, I you know, we have so much more uh, in terms of options for managing a hemodynamically unstable patient. You push the sodium bicarb so far, and if it's not working, then you need to move on, is sort of <laughs> how, how I would characterize it. Uh, if, it's not going, if it's not helping, if it's not changing the hemodynamics, you're going to be uh, dealing with a very sick patient who's going to require usually multiple pressors and other interventions that we're probably going to talk about shortly. Um, so don't, you know, if, if once you once you treat the patient to the bet, you know, and, and push their pH to 7.5. It's not working. Move on. We had a patient who had, uh, had received so much bicarb that they ran out of the stores. We're trying to get some from another hospital. The patient had a sodium of 170. Oh, wow. Th that's not good either. Right. So, uh, it's time to look for other ways of treating it. Awesome. So to summarize that sodium bicarb, uh, in terms of goals, we're uh, trying to narrow our QRS, but if it's not narrowing, we're not going to push it. Um, no sodium, we don't want to push above, say, 155, and the pH aims somewhere around 7.5. Yeah. Let's switch gears here. In, in general, um, we see a lot of patients with antidepressant ingestions. And one of the things we always examine patients for is, is signs of serotonin syndrome. What's your logistic approach to benzo benzodiazepine dosing in these patients? This is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so essentially my experience from poison center calls, you know, and from the bedside in the emergency department 
what I've observed is that patients tend to be under sedated with all with these overdoses in general. Okay. Now I completely understand because it happens to me too. Logistically, it's often difficult to achieve the right dosing and interval of dosing of benzos that is recommended because it, it requires really frequent nursing assessments and also education of everybody who's dealing with the patient at the bedside to understand the importance of higher doses and the frequency of dosing. And so well, we've certainly seen some success in our department with regards to uh, you know, benzo dosing within alcohol withdrawal. And so I think people are more aware of the importance of, of this kind of uh, approach. But we still have to pay attention. The main goal of sedation in this situation is to prevent complications of toxicity. So hyperthermia, seizures, catecholamine excess resulting in cardiovascular complications. And so if the general approach is pick a benzo. Don't start switching from benzo to benzo, okay? Um, and, and know it well. So my personal preference in, the, in, a, in a, a case that uh, I know is going to probably be symptomatic for a day or two is uh, diazepam because you can quickly titrate it and it, has, it sticks around for a while. So diazepam can be given every five minutes without overshooting because you see the effect that it's going to have in that time frame. Uh, lorazepam, the dosing interval is more like 20 every 20 minutes so that you don't overshoot, okay? So I tend to try to front load these patients, so to speak, just like we would an alcohol withdrawal. You want to get control of the situation within the first hour or two, and then you have a really good idea of how benzoresponsive responsive they are and how much it actually took to get them to a point where they're a little more sleepy and less agitated. My general approach is to give five to 10 milligrams of diazepam every five minutes, if possible, <laughs> and just sort of see what response they have to it with the goal really of being them being less agitated and less tachycardic. Because if you let it go if you let them be tachycardic and agitated they will seize they will get sicker the other thing is especially with something like bupropion if they're already that symptomatic it's an ex it's a sustained release product you're not looking at them kind of sleeping for a bit and being fine in six hours they're probably going to be sick for two days whether it's mm. in imcu the emergency department or the icu they're not going anywhere Okay, yeah. so, so uh, if they've declared themselves, so to speak, uh, by being, you know, delirious, agitated, tachycardic, uh, you need to be aggressive with your sedation. And if they require really high doses in the first hour or two of benzos, then you know you should probably just intubate them. Mm. What does it, what, what's the goal clinically? Like, what do they look like? So you, you order the five to 10 every five minutes. And you walk into the room, what does it mean to have had an adequate response? Is it a RAS? Like, are you looking for a RAS of zero to minus one? Are you looking for a patient who's alert but no longer um, having clonus? What's the, what's the clinical sort of endpoint to that? It's not quite the same as, you know, like, you know, sleepy but breathing on their own, like you would say for alcohol withdrawal or, you know, those, those patients tend to 
sometimes they can they are a normal mental status after several doses of benzos, but this is different. Mm. These patients are going to have CNS depression. Uh, what I would like to see is a, a patient who is not agitated, moving around a lot, showing signs of obvious neurotoxicity, like clonus, hyperreflexia, sometimes ocular clonus, and extreme tachycardia, so heart rates of above 140. Mm. So I would like to see somebody who's sleepy, heart rate, heart rate of 120 is okay. I mean, ideally, it would be back to normal, but, you know, that's not always the case. And of course, not seizing <laughs> and not hyperthermic. But those are more extreme uh, complications. It's not um, easy to advise this type of thing over the phone because it really is a bedside decision as to how you're going to kind of assess the response uh, of the patient to the doses of benzos you're giving. But I would suggest that a, a, a sort of a bigger picture level that the predicted clinical course, if that is, well, this patient is um, going to require a high level of observation in, in either our department, the IMCU or ICU, and they're requiring multiple doses of benzos, that airway management should be initiated. Because certainly with bupropion, the risk of seizures in a, there was a recent uh, retrospective review of 78 cases of bupropion ingestions in a single center that had an inpatient toxicology service and 58% seized. Wow. Um, 30% required intubation. So these are the sort of general numbers that we're seeing for bupropion specifically. Uh, venlafaxine is obviously another one that is more problematic. Uh, so it, it really emphasizes the idea that if your expected clinical course is prolonged toxicity and they're requiring high doses and frequent doses of benzos, that you should really consider airway management. What we also see down the road is uh, if if patients' uh, airway management is delayed and they end up getting sedated for hours, uh, aspiration occurs, they end up in ICU on a vent for days. The ones that we aggressively treat tend to have a shorter length of stay in ICU, which is good for everybody involved. That's yeah. not to say that as soon as somebody walks in with a bupropion overdose, I'm telling you, you should intubate them right away. Use your clinical judgment. Do a trial of supportive care with benzodiazepines and the appropriate dosing and, and appropriate interval of dosing. And make a judgment call at that point. Yeah, it's a really tough one, isn't it? it, it in toxicology, there's this sort of natural history of disease that people like yourself who manage them frequently enough can sort of predict how things are going to go. And it's a little harder for the clinician at the, the resuscitationist at the bedside um, who might not experience that as often. And then to try to make a, make a decision that seems as, as significant as intubating them uh, earlier on uh, seems a bit, pro probably seems a bit daunting to, to that physician um, who might not have as much experience with the natural disease course. Any, any sort of comment on that? Well, I agree. It is hard to persuade people, but it's also hard for me to, over the phone, <laughs> to, uh, 
to uh, sort of make the call. Yeah. Uh, unless it's somebody I know well, you know, like you, if I was talking to you on the phone and you said, no, I don't think they need to be intubated, I would trust that. But mm-hmm. if I don't know the clinician and what their threshold would be, um, you know, it's harder to make that call and to uh, push for it aggressively. But I would say the the kind of predictors of significant toxicity would be ingestions of greater than five grams. Um if they have a heart rate of greater than 140, if they already have a QTC of greater than 500, a wide QRS, and more than one seizure, then those are kind of predictors that things aren't going to go well and that they've, they've kind of already declared themselves as being quite toxic and should strongly be considered for definitive airway management. You're referring specifically to propion. Do, do, the, do the other... Uh, f- Features that you mentioned, you know, more than one seizure, clinical status, neurotoxicity, um, did those kind of apply broadly to other antidepressants as well in terms of patients who present with serotonin syndrome specifically as a natural history of disease that they should be intubated earlier on if they have those features? Not really, because um, the a lot of the other ones uh, are not sustained release. So the mm-hmm. predicted clinical course is shorter and less severe in general. Um, and so mo- like a lot of, a lot of patients might have like a, a single brief seizure that doesn't necessarily portend a bad prognosis in all comers mm. for bupropion and venlafaxine. It might, you know, it would be more uh, worrisome for uh, a poorer outcome. So it does depend on the agent involved. And of course, if somebody took a, a one gram of bupropion, and somebody else took, you know, 25 grams of fluoxetine, probably the second patient's going to be sicker, but, you know, mm-hmm. because of the dose taken. So you really, again, it's, it's all about, um, you know, the evolution of the clinical uh, presentation. You do have to reassess frequently initially to sort of help yourself kind of make a decision about a definitive airway management or not. But I would say that if you're following the, you know, if you're sedating the patient adequately um, and everything else is stable, that's not wrong. It's just that uh, if you have somebody with a sustained release product and they're, they're going to be like that for 48 hours, probably. So if you know that, uh, you know, sometimes it's important to just be aggressive and to do airway management early. What specifically about bupropion makes it so, I mean, we know it's got the neurotoxicity we already kind of talked about. The cardiotoxicity component, there's a bit of a unique feature to bupropion as I'm aware. So you could talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, first of all, bupropion is a, a synthetic cathinone, otherwise known as bath salts. So that should trigger a... Uh, <laughs> I did not know that. A big red flag. And it's also a popular uh, medication to crush and snort uh, in forensic uh, facilities. Really? Uh, Because it's, so it's very, uh, it's very much a stimulant drug. So that's why seizures are so common with it. Uh, But in terms of the cardiotoxicity, what, you know, the, the sodium channel blockade kind of, question what we talked about with TCAs, venlafaxine, and other drugs. Uh, 
the mechanism for QRS widening and bupropion is a little different because it's, um, it's not so much the sodium channels themselves that are affected, but there's an interference with um, cardiac intercellular coupling via gap junctions. So this mechanism is unique to bupropion. And what does that mean clinically? Well, you sound smart at a party talking about gap <laughs> junctions, but, uh, <laughs> but what it means clinically is that sodium bicarbolysis probably won't do a whole lot. And we've mm -hmm. certainly observed that clinically. You know, I, uh, you, people see a wide QRS, they treat with bicarb. That's fine. It's not going to be harmful. It might help because there may be some uh, communication between the gap, or, you know, relationship between the gap junctions and the sodium channels. So it's not wrong to try it, but just know that it probably won't work. So that's a limitation in terms of our um, armamentarium for approaching cardiotoxicity with bupropion. Great pearls there. I want to move on. We already kind of touched on uh, the severity of bupropion. I want to talk a little bit more about the management. This seems to be one of those ingestions where whole bowel irrigation is an important component of the management. Can you talk about why that is specifically with bupropion? Yeah, whole bowel is tricky because, um, yeah, I'd love, you know, to do whole bowel more often, but there's usually a pretty small window of opportunity to do so. <laughs> um, bupropion, you know, if, if, with these large ingestions of bupropion, with the sustained release product, you can give it, you know, a dose of charcoal, but um, whole bowel is really what's going to push it out of the gut, right? It's, it's what's going to prevent absorption and prevent all the bad toxicity. But there are contraindications to using it that limit its effectiveness in the situation. So in an ideal world, so preventing the absorption would be great. The timing is kind of the tricky part. So when a patient first comes in, okay, they say, I took a bunch of bupropion, and they're not terribly symptomatic at that point. It's hard to say, oh, well, we should uh, intubate that patient and start whole bowel because they don't look, they look fine right now. Right? Mm, is there really yeah. truly an indication to do so? In my opinion, no. Um, if they if they come in s already symptomatic, I'm also not going to want to do whole bowel because they could be about to seize, they could be about to drop their pressure, and so all of these things are sort of uh, maybe about to happen. <laughs> so mm. then you put the patient at risk of uh, aspiration, which is also not great. Um, in general, I don't, you know, I don't say I don't intubate patients just to start decontamination. Okay, the exception to that might be something like colchicine that has absolutely no uh, reversal of toxicity possible and can kill people. Um, you know, drugs like that, you might make a case, but for this type of drug, since some people actually do okay with supportive care, it's hard to tease out who's going to benefit and who isn't. You have somebody who's at high risk of deteriorating, and so if they're not intubated, eh, you know, maybe it's not the right thing to do whole bowel. Um, and so it kind of uh, ties into my general approach if they're if for early intubation. Mm -hmm. if, if you have, I guess, justification for intubating a patient like this, then do that and start the whole bowel then. That would be the ideal scenario. 
But even when you, uh, after you intubate a patient like this for other reasons, you know, for the medical reasons, uh, starting whole bowel is only going to be effective if their gut motility is intact. And so if they're hypotensive, probably not a great time to start whole bowel either. So you can see that it gets muddy as far as when can we actually start whole bowel. It's a controversial area in the field of toxicology because there's not really any quote-unquote proof that it changes outcome. But as we know, we kind of have to, we're never going to have a randomized controlled trial for this type of scenario. So uh, what we have to work with is probability that it might help in a large ingestion by preventing absorption. Once it's absorbed, there's not much recourse to reverse cardio and neurotoxicity. You know, you alluded to the idea that these patients can decompensate, become hemodynamically deranged. In general, how do you manage this in a bupropion overdose? Also, if they become hemodynamically unstable, then you're talking about sort of drug-induced cardiogenic shock for, depending on which drug we're talking about, bupropion or other, you, you, you can do sort of concurrent sodium bicarb boluses, uh, pressors. Norepi is usually our first line. But, you know, the usual additions of various other pressors beyond that, uh, you have to consider things like lipid emulsion therapy. Um, if they're, they have a refractory shock, lipids are sort of reserved for it's a bit of a Hail Mary, you know, but certainly in bupropion specifically, it has been shown to have positive effects on hemodynamics. And again, I would... Um, recommend bolus dosing rather than give a bolus and then start an infusion. I mean, that, that rationale is more for local anesthetic toxicity, and it makes sense for the pharmacokinetics of that class of drugs. But for bupropion, it would, you know, for ingested drugs like this, probably better to do boluses of lipids rather than an infusion. And then another thing that um, doesn't come up super often, but can be quite effective is high-dose insulin. We traditionally think of that intervention as one reserved for cardiovascular drugs only. However, um, it is supported by, you know, <laughs> the usual case reports, case series, theore theoretical advantages of this therapy, uh, and anecdotal cases that have are you, responded. Are you trying to say there's not a robust uh, base <laughs> of literature for all the toxicologic information we have? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so um, high-dose insulin uh, can be a, you know, a helpful adjunct to drug-induced cardiogenic shock that isn't calcium channel blockers or beta blockers. Okay? Mm. And you would use it in the same doses as you do for calcium channel blocker overdose. And certainly ECMO, if you're in an ECMO-capable center, obviously that would be ideal. And, and it's not, un, you know, in that situation, uh, the high-dose insulin can at least provide a bridge for the time frame before ECMO is actually started. Or if they're being transferred from another facility to get ECMO, high-dose insulin lipids are certainly helpful. Nancy, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about was just other drugs that we need to think about. You know, you've mentioned bupropion. We've talked about TCAs and their effect on the heart. Are there any other drugs 
that we should think about that cause cardiac dysfunction I mean, outside of the, the normal ones? Because I think we all, you know, we all always think about the beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, digoxin, these kind of cardiac meds that, you know, the first thing you think about is the effect on the heart. And then if you're keen and astute, you may think about propion and TCAs, but is there anything else in the tox world that could cause cardiac dysfunction that we should keep on the radar? Well, yeah, venlafaxine, since we're talking about antidepressants in this in this case, uh, venlafaxine cardio, cardiotoxicity can be significant. There's uh, an acute reversible cardiomyopathy that can occur. Um, the mechanism for this is not fully understood, but appears to be a dose-dependent sodium channel blockade, just as you would see with TCAs, uh, as well as catecholamine excess resulting in almost a Takotsuba-like effect. So the combination of the two probably sounds bad, and I think are logical explanations for this phenomenon. Um, the cases in, in the literature and the cases we've had here you know, it's patients who uh, develop significant toxicity and have uh, ejection fractions on bedside echo of like in the single digits. They they do often fully recover over about a week or so. Uh, some requiring ECMO in the meantime, you know, during that time. But uh, the importance of this is to be aware that venlafaxine can cause this, uh, to look for it on bedside echo. And uh, that this kind of scenario may require ECMO for support while the uh, heart is recovering. Nancy, is there anything that we missed about antidepressant toxidromes or toxicities? Well, I think just briefly touching upon hyperthermia, because any drug-induced hyperthermic syndrome has the uh, higher risk of bad outcome. Specific to antidepressant toxicity, if you have hyperthermia in this kind of situation, um, it can result in death, ultimately, but uh, severe outcomes. And so if you notice that the patient is developing uh, hyperthermia early on in their course, then they should absolutely be immediately intubated and sedated. And in some select cases that aren't responsive to uh, External cooling and sedation would be paralysis. Uh, this is a rare occurrence in antidepressant toxicity because I think we are much better at sedating and kind of preventing the buildup to this um, by controlling the agitation and that you know neuromuscular excitation that can result in hyperthermia. So that would just be another thing to watch out for, but it is thankfully rare. Um, just something to aggressively treat once you identify it. And so by treat, we mean all the stuff we've already talked about in terms of giving good doses of benzodiazepines. Is there a particular temperature uh, that you would be, would be your trigger for uh, just intubating them and externally cooling them? The people who do badly are certainly, you know, in the forties, but that's usually because they've been, under sedated and sort of left to get worse and worse over over several hours. It doesn't tend to occur very quickly, but uh, except for, you know, in the cases of uh, drugs of abuse, like MDMA is certainly associated with fairly rapid onset uh, hyperthermia. But in this kind of context with these drugs, 
it doesn't tend to occur unless you've under sedated the patient and let things kind of accumulate. That's good to know. All right. Well, Nancy, thank you very much for coming on the show again. And that's it for antidepressants. Thank you so much. Thank you. In general, antidepressant overdoses do quite well. We see them a lot. They come into the department. They stay for a while for observation. They go home. But there are a few that we really need to know how to manage well because they can get quite sick. Let's start with TCAs. TCAs are a scary overdose. They can have cardiotoxicity as well as neurotoxicity. The cardiotoxicity, as Nancy talked about, is from the sodium channel blockade. And what we see with that is some widening of the QRS as well as hemodynamic instability and the potential for dysrhythmias. Neurotoxicity presents itself in way of agitation, altered LOC, and unfortunately, sometimes seizures. To treat these, we're giving sodium bicarb boluses for decreased blood pressure, prolonged QRS, or any cardiac dysrhythmias. And in terms of the neurotoxicity and seizures, we're treating like we normally would, so giving these patients benzos, but also considering giving the patients sodium bicarb. Remember, we can't forget about good supportive care. So those patients that are hypotensive, they need fluid boluses, pressors, inotropes as needed. These are patients that we would consider hyperventilating if they're intubated to target a pH of 7.5 to 7.55. And the rationale here, as we discussed, is that lower pHs result in increased binding and effect of the TCAs. Finally, as part of a last-ditch effort, intralipid or ECMO can be used for severe cardiotoxicity in a TCA overdose. Nancy really hit home the point that while sodium bicarb boluses are important, at some point, if it's not working, don't continue to give it. The reasons that we're giving it again are low blood pressure, prolonged QRS, or cardiac dysrhythmias. We don't want to have a sodium greater than 155, and in terms of pH, again, we're really only targeting between 7.5 and 7.55. The QRS does not have to normalize. Propion is a scary overdose. It, too, has neuro and cardiotoxicity, but one of the things about Propion is that can, it can have a very delayed onset of activity and toxicity. This is an extended release medication. So we can see patients that have significant neurotoxicity with seizures 12 to 16 hours after their ingestion. The other pearl to remember with bupropion overdoses is that the QRS widening is not due to sodium channel blockade. As Nancy described, this is instead due to gap-gap junction interference in the myocardial cells. So what you need to remember is that sodium bicarb boluses in a bupropion overdose may not close your QRS. As well, it may not improve the cardiotoxicity associated with bupropion. That does not mean that we shouldn't be giving it. I'm a believer that in resuscitation, one of the most important things is the correct process. And the correct process for QRS widening in the context of a toxic overdose is to give the patient sodium bicarb. It's always possible that the patient took a co-ingestion with a TCA or some other sodium channel blocking agent. And it is always better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. If you stick to the process of, if I have a patient with a prolonged QRS and they've had a toxic ingestion, if your process is give them sodium bicarb, then you may not be correct, but you'll never be wrong. So how do we care for bupropion overdoses? Ultimately, it comes down to good supportive care. So number one, airway management. Timing and airway management for bupropion overdoses is key here. 
Nancy talked about the idea that some of these patients would benefit from early airway management. These patients are at high risk of seizing. And so if you delay intubation, you may be in a situation with a patient who's actively seizing and airway management becomes a lot more difficult. The risks of early airway management in these patients is that some patients may not ultimately manifest significant neurologic or cardiotoxicity and may never have required being intubated. But remember, it is a lot easier to take a tube out of a patient who didn't need it than to put one into a patient who needed it before you did it. And there's a good correlation between amount ingested and predicted clinical effects of bupropion. If a patient has taken more than 4.5 grams, they have a greater than 50% likelihood of seizing. And if they've taken greater than 9 grams, seizures are essentially universal. At this dose, we also start to see significant cardiotoxicity. So if a patient comes into the emergency department and you can confirm that they've taken greater than 4.5 grams, and definitely if they've taken more than 9 grams, even if this patient is currently asymptomatic, consider airway management because you know that eventually that patient is going to develop significant neurotoxicity and potentially cardiotoxicity. Once that patient is intubated, consider whole bowel irrigation. Otherwise, management of propion is largely supportive. Use of pressors, fluids, ionotropes. This would also be an overdose where we'd consider intralipid for significant cardiotoxicity that is refractory to our typical treatments, and VA ECMO in the event that myocardial dysfunction is refractory to our technical treatments. TCAs and bupropion aren't the only antidepressants that can cause significant cardiotoxicity. Venlafaxine, as Nancy mentioned, is another drug that in significant overdoses can cause a myocardial dysfunction similar to Takotsubos that can lead to cardiogenic shock and need for things like ICU care, pressors, inotropes, and potentially ECMO. Finally, we talked about serotonin syndrome, and this is that presentation that we always need to worry about with antidepressants because a large number of them are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Remember, these patients will present tachycardic, confused, agitated. They may have a fever and may have clonus, either spontaneous or induced. Nancy really harped on this idea that aggressive benzodiazepines are the way to manage these patients. What does that look like? somewhere between 5 and 10 of IV diazepam, PRN, with a clinical endpoint of a patient who is sleepy, who is not tachycardic, and has minimal to no clonus. Hyperthermia in serotonin syndrome is not as prevalent as in things like stimulant overdoses like cocaine or MDMA, but we still can see it in antidepressant overdoses if patients aren't adequately managed with benzodiazepines. And so the treatment is giving the patient adequate benzodiazepines. If the patient is persistently hyperthermic, you can use cooling methods, but really the life threat hyperthermia occurs when the patient has a temperature greater than 40, at which point we'd be intubating the patient for aggressive cooling plus or minus neuromuscular blockade. And that's all for antidepressants. If you guys like this podcast, head on over to theresuscourse.com for more free open access medicine related to resuscitation. And thanks for listening to The Recess Course.